Okay, thank you. So tonight's talk, can you hear me in back? Is it good? A little higher? Okay. That's number, uh, I can't see the number. It's number six. How about now? Can you hear me in back? Still more? You don't want to hear every swallow and every, you know, how's that? Uh, do you need more sound? One, one more. One more, okay. Put your mic up Okay, I'll put this up higher. How about this? Is that a little better? I ask just because I know that... Um, I can't hear from here at all what you can hear in back, and sometimes my voice drops and I speak softly. It sounds, oh, it sounds quite loud from here. How about you, back there? No? Okay. So I'm going to assume it's perfect, and if you are having trouble hearing, just go like that or signal and um, we'll fix it for you. Because there is uh, the point of the talk is for you to be able to hear it. Uh, <laughs> I spent the afternoon reflecting on this talk, and um, so I would like for you to be able to hear it. And in some ways, the talk is a response to Robert's question last night, why is it so difficult? And it's a funny question. Um, my first teacher used to say to us when we would yeah, we would actually complain that the practice was so difficult. We were very young, we were wild in our 20s, and having to just sit and walk and be quiet, it was just really tough. And, and he would just laugh and look at us and say, when you're eating breakfast, do you say, is it easy? Is it difficult? When you're having your oatmeal, are you asking yourself, is this hard? Is this easy to do? I understand his point. You probably do too, that the whole idea of making something easy, making something difficult is kind of extra. It's an idea that we form about our experience. At the same time, it, knowing that we're here to be present with experience, that we long to uh, live our life so fully and really show up for all of it, and yet, and yet, uh, this is a very deep and perennial question that Robert asked and that you may be asking yourselves. And my favorite expression of it comes from the Zen tradition where I trained for a couple of decades. Uh, I sat Vipassana in the very early years. I think I sat the second retreat that Jack taught uh, and then sat, practiced Zen with my heart teacher, Maureen Stewart Roshi, until she died in 1990. And then I kind of drifted back to my old friends, the Vipassana teachers. And uh, so my first teacher was a Zen teacher. That was, um, you know, is it hard, is it difficult when you eat breakfast? This one is from centuries ago. 
a monk asked, this is from Tang Dynasty China, when the Dharma was so hot. I mean, it was like, I don't know, Super Bowl or something, when teachers would come and have a debate. You know, hundreds of people would come, and it was really, it was really very, very um, flourishing and flowering at that time. And the monk came and asked the Zen master, uh, Zhao Shu, Joshu, Joshu, depending Jap- Korean, Japanese, Chinese uh, rendition of the name. And the monk said, um, why do we stumble on level ground? And the monk is each one of us asking this question. I mean, if we ever had level ground, it's spirit rock. I mean, I know it's deep, but I'm talking metaphorically here, a place where, you know, the obstacles are cleared away. The entire beautiful place exists to support you, us, in our practice. A staff, buildings, um, these beautiful meals, and all of it is to create, to smooth our way to be able to do this. And so this monk is also in a monastery, maybe somewhere beautiful in the mountains of China, uh, where everything, you know, the distractions, there's no um, email or telephone. Or, all the distractions are cleared away, and yet it's still difficult. And so he's asking, why do we stumble, even on level ground? And the teacher says, It's only because the heart runs wild. I love this answer. It's only because the heart, it's only because the heart runs wild. There is so much compassion and understanding of the truth of suffering. But before I talk about the noble truths, I want to turn to a modern-day answer to this question of why is it so difficult. Recently, actually it was a week ago, uh, Sunday, this past Sunday, uh, Rick Hansen came and did a day-long at Insight LA. He's a neuropsychologist who just wrote a book um, called Buddha's Brain, The Practical Neuroscience of Happiness, Love, and Wisdom. And he came and taught what will be the first in a series of talks about how we can use our minds to change our brains. And of course, when we change our brains, we change our experience of our minds and we change our lives that way. And so this one was um, a day about how to begin to do just what we're doing here these first couple days, how to calm down how to begin to concentrate, how to access states of peace and equanimity. And one of the things that he spoke about I want to share with you. Some of you may know this, but it made a lot of sense of certain things I've always wondered about. Uh, He talked about how there's... uh, a bias toward negativity in the way our brains <laughs> perceive things. And that this 
bias toward negativity, it means essentially that, uh, he says, scientists believe that your brain has a built-in negativity bias. In other words, we're somehow wired to notice things that are difficult, that are threatening, that might be dangerous to us, and from the point of view of evolution, this was a good idea because it would contribute to our survival, that we would remember where the rattlesnake was on the path and be careful when we would come near that spot. But it also means that we remember the slights, the hurts, the disappointments, the fears. We're wired to notice anything that signals threat to us and to forget the things that we really don't need to notice for our survival. And in fact, he was saying that if you think about um, early people, we're, we're still wired like the earliest people. Um, think about you're in an environment where things could actually come and eat you if you aren't looking out, you know, if you're not kind of vigilant like a squirrel. And, or a bird, you notice they dart and they're very vigilant. And if you're just sitting there grooving on, you know, the beautiful light on the hills and noticing how gorgeous the day is and how blue the sky, you know, something could eat you while you're doing that. So we don't easily allow ourselves to rest into those states. And To me, this made sense. I worked for 25 years as a psychotherapist, and and I remember in my own therapy, in my 20s, wondering, why do I remember the one time my dad hauled off and spanked me, maybe a little too hard, and I don't remember, or at least I don't have specific memories of the countless evenings when he tucked me in and read me a story, and it was all very sweet, why, uh, you know, you go to therapy and suddenly all these memories, now I'm assuming I had just had the ordinary neurotic, good sheltered childhood. Um, it's different, obviously, if you've survived um, trauma and abuse of, or violence in the home and so forth. But, but the same principle holds true throughout our lives, that we're selecting and remembering the things that are difficult and painful. And it might help to know this when you're sitting here and instead of your mind and your memories, you know, being flooded with pleasant moments from all the previous years of your life, nice meals you ate, pretty music you listened to, just pleasant days and so forth. That's probably not most of what is arising in your consciousness as you sit here. It helps to understand that it's not, uh, as Wes likes to say about our nervous systems, it's not our fault. Uh, This is another doorway into understanding the not-self element of our experience, that it's not personal. It's not because you're a pessimist or a depressive type or, you know, the different names we might call ourselves. It's not a story about who we are, except in the most universal sense that we are all like this. This is how it is. 
to be a human being and this is why I think um, this is part of why the Buddha spent 40 years wandering around northern India um, teaching about the importance of understanding suffering, what causes it, the possibility of being free from it, and how to live in such a way that that can actually happen. And it's interesting, too, that uh, I want to share a story with you about something my mom said toward the end of her life and, and something my heart teacher, Maureen, said toward the end of hers. These are two women who, well, my mom lived a long time. Uh, she didn't die until about a year and a half ago when she was 88. Uh, she did want to live until 90. Um, I suppose we always want to go on longer. That's the nature of life. Um, but toward the end of her life, and it was actually two weeks before she died, but we didn't know that, uh, I was talking to her on the phone. I was tired. I had completed a lot of teaching, and um, I was probably complaining a little bit. It was Friday night, the end of the week, and in, in my family, um, complaining was one of the currencies for intimacy. We just complained <laughs> to each other. And nobody called it whining. Um, that's what uh, the WASP families called it. The Jewish families, you know, it was just part of what we did with each other. And not to make um, maybe unsavory generalizations, but it did seem a bit like that to me. So it was, a, you know, Shabbat coming, and I was complaining to my mother about being tired a little bit and um, yawning. And she used to say with this sort of dryly when I would yawn, tired for a change. And, uh, <laughs> but at least she didn't take it personally and think it was because, you know, she was boring or something. Um, she didn't go there. But so I was telling her what I was doing. And she just, she did something very unusual. She actually interrupted me and said, she said, honey, whatever you're doing, do it with joy. I was really surprised. She had never said anything like that to me before. Usually she'd just listen and be sympathetic. I mean, she's your mom, you know, it's really, who else would you talk to that way? And who else would listen to you if you did? And, um, but, you know, they're just glad to get your phone call. And um, so she said, whatever you do, do it with joy. And I was, it really struck me. And I had all these thoughts, you know, is this, is she consciously imparting her wisdom to me because she knows she's coming to the end of her life, which she did know? Um, or, you know, was this on purpose that she said that? My mind kind of spin out. Um, I wanted it to be this moment where she was conferring, you know, bestowing. But I don't know if it was. I'll never really know. But what I do know is that it was an important thing that she said. And it reminded me of something that Maureen had said to me, too. Um, toward the end of her life, and it actually was the last night she spent in her apartment. But again, we didn't know that at the time. My then husband and I were 
visiting her. He had, she was in some pain and he was giving her some massage and I was cleaning up her kitchen. Um, a student had come to make dinner for her and he was a great cook, but he never did the dishes. So um, <laughs> I was doing the dishes and then uh, she was lying down in her living room afterwards. Um, she had purple. You know those kind of lines, they're these long strips that hang and then they turn when you, that's how they close. And she had purple ones in her living room. And, um, and I really wanted to ask her, and it didn't really occur to me that it could be frightening to ask your teacher about their enlightenment, you know, at the end of their life. But I could be honest with her. We had a very close relationship and I felt my mind very simple and open when I was with her. So she's lying on the couch and I'm straightening up. I think then I was, you know how you remember an important moment when somebody tells you something or I was straightening up the magazines on her coffee table. She had these, she loved to cook and she had gourmet magazines. And I asked her at this time in your life, what is it? Um, I really want to know after a whole life of Buddhist practice, and awakening, uh, and so many enlightenment experiences. How is it for you now? How do you see life from the place that you're in now? And knowing that these are some of your last days, what would you tell me now? And she didn't miss a beat. I mean, I really was asking for her the summation of her Zen truth in that moment. She didn't miss a beat, but what she said was not at all what I was expecting. She said, live it up. <laughs> now, any of you who have sat in a zendo, <laughs> you know, enduring hair-raising pain <laughs> sometimes and not moving and really, you know, practicing meeting, it, you know, you sort of practice, it's a metaphor, it's kind of a laboratory for meeting the pain of your life. In, it could be emotional pain or losses that we have, betrayals, the things that happen to us, right? As human beings in this life, we would use the body, the first foundation of mindfulness, this body that we've been um, being in here, mindfully, as the laboratory for working with other kinds of pain. And so, and she was very, very strong during her illness, and I only saw her cry once. And uh, so it wasn't what I was expecting to hear, live it up. And she spoke with her usual authority and power, you know, just absolutely clear. And it's been a kind of koan for me over the years, but I thought of it when my mom said, whatever you do, honey, do it with joy. I thought of that, the wisdom of my Zen teacher, the heart advice of my mother, and both women so close to their dying at that time that um, it seemed like this is their time. This, I mean, it was their time of wisdom. And um, they saw something similar. And what they saw actually wasn't what, certainly wasn't what my mom taught me all her life. 
And it certainly wasn't what Maureen was saying in the Zendo all that time, uh, at least not on the surface of it. And maybe it's not even what they were each able to necessarily live during their whole lives, but it was what uh, it was the truth that they saw and offered toward the end of their lives. And my mom died two weeks later, and Maureen died five days later, actually. Went into the hospital the next day, and I don't know, four or five days later, um, she, uh, she passed away. And I tell you this because it links, I think, to, to Rick's work, at least in my mind, to this uh, negativity bias that we live with, that they lived with, and that somehow they definitely freed themselves from. And I know, um, at least for my mom, she didn't wait till she died. She really tried to live and enjoy um, her life all the time as best that she could. And, and she kind of liked uh, even having, her, she could make fun even of her terminal diagnosis. You know, we'd, she could just eat ice cream for dinner and she'd just say, you know, it doesn't matter anymore. And, and that was a kind of freedom for her. So I think for us here, the implication is pretty clear that we need to make that effort to deliberately incline the mind toward noticing that which is positive and that which is good and really taking in the good moments and taking in if somebody says something kind to you. I said something kind to somebody in the meeting group today. and. I could see by her face all this kind of skepticism on it, her face. And I said, can you take that in? She was very honest. She said, I don't know if I can. Um, so to make that effort to, to take it in. And this really dovetails with the Buddha's teaching, Nyaponikatera, in that wonderful classic, The Heart of Buddhist Meditation. He says, to that which we bring attention, to that does the mind incline. To that which we bring attention, to that does the heart incline. This is really very clear. We know this. Uh, that which we enjoy thinking about and think about comes up again. Pumpkin pie. Here it is again, right? Uh, I think we are all thinking about that by now. Um, it, I am, anyway, after that exchange this morning. Um, it felt like this giant permission. So uh, this is also the truth. I mean, this is why we practice. You learned the metta practice. Some of you have practiced these um, practices for decades now. Uh, for me, as having trained in Western psychology, it came as a radical, I mean, the idea that you could deliberately cultivate and strengthen positive states of mind. This was not something that was taught to me. Now there's a whole field of positive psychology. The last decade, people are beginning to learn this. And interestingly, a lot of the practices of positive psychology come from Buddhist psychology. 
practices of um, inclining the heart in the direction of growing our capacity for love, for compassion, for joy, for calm, serenity, equanimity. The Buddha taught uh, that it's possible to do this. It's like magic. We can actually, over and over again, direct our attention this way, and it happens. Um, It's almost like the phrases that carry the metta or the uh, goodwill, the, um, the friendliness, the warmth of that. They, they could be like abracadabra, you know, they're like a, uh, they can have that kind of magic if we stay with it. And we know, the Buddha said too, that very small moments add up. It's kind of like your credit card. How did it get that balance, get that big? You know, this is $20 here, 30 it adds up. In the same way, these moments of mindfulness, that you practice here. The Buddha said, drop by patient drop. This is how freedom comes. Drop by patient drop. These moments of mindfulness. One day at a time. Here we go one moment at a time. Um, Small things that make big changes. And this, too, we know from neuroscience, that whatever we think, even these fleeting thoughts and feelings we have, leave traces in our brains. And so the positive ones, too, can leave their traces. And we can, um, through our attention and our willingness to take them in, we can make sure that those traces become... um, not so fleeting, because whatever we bring attention to, to that does the mind incline, and that's where the neurons in our brains are firing too, and where they're firing, connections are being made, and where connections are being made over and over again, pathways are being created. We actually change our brains. You know, it's like walking across the grass. The first time, maybe it's bent down, and then it springs back up. But if we keep walking on that pathway, eventually there will be a visible, findable path that we can walk the next time. We can see it clearly. The fact of these pathways um, happening and the brain structure changing is called neuroplasticity. It's like the good news of neuroscience, that our brain changes throughout our lifetime. Uh, You know, when I studied, we thought it was only in early childhood. And let me tell you, as a parent, that is a scary thought, (laughs) especially when you have a child really young. Like, oh my gosh, it's fixed, you know, her whole, the template, all my... um, awkward, mindless, I didn't start to practice until she was five years old. Uh, So I had a lot of despair thinking that was it, you know. Uh, But it's not true. Throughout our lives we can make these changes and um, 
I guess the only caveat, the only bad news is that neuroplasticity is always on. It's not just on when you're practicing metta and being mindful and meditating. It's on when you're standing in front of that refrigerator completely spaced out, wondering if there's anything but tofu and hard-boiled eggs in there, (laughs) or fantasizing about what you left in your fridge at home, or, you know, it's on all the time. And so this is another motivation, if you didn't have enough from your own suffering, to practice, to try and stay awake and stay mindful of what we're doing. during the day. I think now when Maureen said, live it up, when she first said it, you know, I had the gourmet magazine in front of me and I was thinking things like that, you know, eat, drink and be merry, that kind of living it up. And, and I think now she was saying, enjoy life fully and live it fully. And we know that to be able to live joyfully, we have to also be willing to live that which is not joyful, fully. It doesn't work, unfortunately, to try to shut down one end of the spectrum of experience and just open up to the other end. That's called denial. And... Maybe in the short term it works to compartmentalize and do that, but that which we keep outside of awareness inevitably comes back. And it has more power over us because it's outside of awareness. We don't even know really what we've shut down or suppressed. And then the other thing about it is that we fear that which we um, aren't willing to face. It's much scarier when we procrastinate about facing the difficult. It just gets more and more frightening, like doing your taxes. When you actually sit down, it's never as bad as you think it's going to be. I deliberately use these very simple, mundane examples so that more and more you can ask yourself the question, of how to bring these teachings into every bit of your lives. Every bit, every corner, every nook, every cranny, every bit of your lives. And that uh, to question how to do this, this is a really, this is a noble question. There's a Sufi story that I like that is, um, well, it's linked, and if it isn't obvious, I'll tell you afterwards how. Um, It's a story about Nasruddin, the Sufi master, and I reheard it the other day. I think it was somebody else's Dharma talk I was listening to. I think it was Joseph. But anyway, uh, he, the story is that he, was um, a trader at that time of his life. He was working as a trader, doing business, and he was going, I think it was Turkey, Persia, that was the border that he was crossing. And he would cross the border with his string of donkeys, 
and the border, what do they call the passport people at the border? Anyway, the guards or whatever they were called would search all the saddlebags and the donkey's uh, saddles and see what he was bringing into the country and they never found anything bad and so they let him come in. But he was coming back and forth a lot and he was getting really wealthy. He had built a big house, he was obviously more and more prosperous and the guards, they really thought that he was smuggling. So they would search more diligently and underneath the, you know, the saddle belt and everything. But they could never find anything. And then he became whatever in his time was a gajillionaire. He just <laughs> retired from trading. And a couple years later, he was at the market. And one of the guards saw him and said, you know, you're not trading anymore and I'm not a guard anymore. So now you can tell me. What were you smuggling all that time? And Nasruddin looked at him and said, Oh, that's easy. I can tell you. Donkeys. <laughs> now, what's so great about this story is that they were overlooking the simple, obvious, unglamorous thing. You know, you think jewels, money, drugs donkeys. Um, and it's kind of like just that very, he just had a very simple business and that's what he was doing. Here in our life of retreat, we too are often looking for very luminous jewels of moments and uh, pay dirt of one kind or another. And we kind of overlook the vehicle, you know, that which is actually going to make us most spiritually strong and contented, wealthy in that way. Those moments that are just kind of like donkeys, you know, not very romantic or beautiful, but they do the job because we're awake for them. We're experiencing them. Uh, they are carrying our awareness. And suddenly, when we realize this, then the ordinary things we're doing here, our work meditation, feeding ourselves, going to the bathroom, um, walking up and down the hill, sitting, of course, walking, bathing, just all the ordinary things of our life here together, they're not just that. It's not just eating and walking and sitting anymore. They are transformed into the vehicles of our spiritual wealth, our awareness. And what we think about it doesn't matter. This took me so long to understand in my practice, that what I think about what's happening doesn't matter. Actually, what's happening doesn't even matter. All that matters is, do we know it? Can we be with it? 
without being hard on ourselves, you know, shaming ourselves or blaming somebody else. All that matters is the quality of our attention to it. As a famous Tibetan teacher said once, the price of gold goes up and down, but it doesn't matter. Why doesn't it matter? Do you know why it doesn't matter? Because it's still gold. Our mindfulness is like that. It doesn't matter what we're mindful of. It could be the most sublime moment of gratitude and love for being here and for everyone and everything that made it possible for us to be here. It could be the most petty revenge fantasy. It doesn't matter. What matters is our willingness to know it and be with it, to see it, whatever it is, as it arises in our consciousness and lives and has its being and falls away as it's born and lives and dies. Just to see that, uh, that's what matters. To understand the truth of impermanence. This awareness is gold for us. To understand that everything we take so personally and make it be a story about what a good retreat we're having, what a bad retreat we're having, what a great, you know, it isn't. It's not personal, actually. It it doesn't really matter. Um, It matters that we suffer, of course. It matters to us. But uh, from the point of view of the practice, it's our awareness that matters. And so each thing that we do, each of these very simple mundane things, you know, putting our shoes on or taking them off, becomes a vehicle that carries uh, this knowing, this awakening that we're in. So I I do want to just mention the Four Noble Truths, it might not be possible to go there in this talk, and maybe I'll let somebody else do it. Um, That's the great thing about being a team. We can just all pick up and and help each other that way. It does have to do with our ideas of easy or difficult and that which makes us suffer. The Buddha really did want us to look deeply and question our suffering, not just to be, you know, victims passively of it, but to question it. What is this? How is this living in me? How does this come and go? Is it permanent? Is it myself? Is it who I am? Is it, you know, what is it? Really to question that. And then he wanted us to see what draws us 
more deeply into experiences of suffering and what helps us free the heart. Um, he wanted us to, to see that and to see that when we're caught in thinking, 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 how we wish things would be, how we wish they had been, how we were yesterday, how we might be tomorrow, how we are today, and you're just thinking, thinking, it's so lonesome. When we're wanting things to be any way except how they are, we're not present. And when we're not present, it's lonely. And when we're fully living it up, fully living the moment, we could say a lot of things about it, but it's not lonesome. It's really not. You already have had moments of openness like this where you see this for yourself. And in these moments of openness, we see the third truth of life, that it's possible, maybe not for suffering to end, as we were talking about this morning, um, certainly not once and for all, at least in anybody I know, and I've been blessed to know some amazing um, amazing beings. But what can end is our grasping, clinging, wanting things to be other than they are. Or if we get caught, sometimes things are so awful that, so, you know, somebody's dying, somebody, how could we not want it to be other than a loved one is suffering? Of course we want it to be different. But then to see that too and hold it with some tenderness. That's possible, and that does free the heart. And then we're motivated. Of course, that leads to thinking and speaking and acting and living in ways that will um, support these times of openness and caring and connection. And even here, together, in the retreat, when it can sometimes be so annoying um, to be with each other, Sometimes it's just like, again, you know, full of gratitude. Everyone's just supporting you in your practice, and it's just so great, and you love everybody around you. And other times, somebody's squirming, or they're sniffling, and you forget that it could just be allergies. They may not be spreading swine flu on you. <laughs> and uh, anyway, you know, we have different feelings being together, don't we? I like this, uh, it's from Achan Cha. It's called the millipede. When lots of us come to live together, it's easy to practice when our views are uh, wise and aligned with one another. When we're willing to bend and abandon our pride in the same way we all come together at the level of the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. You can't say that having a lot of people here disturbs your practice. It's kind of like a millipede. A millipede has lots of legs. When you look at it, you think that it's sure to get all confused with so many legs. But it walks. It walks back and forth. And there's really no confusion. It has its rhythm, its order. It's the same with the Buddha's teachings. If you practice like a disciple of the Buddha, it's easy. In other words, if you practice straightforwardly, honestly, in some ways mindfulness is like uh, honesty, 
seeing what's there, telling the truth to ourselves of what's actually here. Since it's here, what kind of relationship are we going to make with it? In other words, if you practice wisely, straightforwardly, practice to gain release from suffering, even if there are hundreds of us, thousands of us, however many of us, it doesn't matter. We can all fall into the same current. We can all fall into the same stream, that stream that Robert was talking about, that we have to swim up. And here we have uh, everything is created to provide for us um, this level ground, and still we have to uh, stumble sometimes. So if you uh, are walking very steadily, this is wonderful. And if you're stumbling, this is wonderful too, because we understand why it's that first truth of life. The heart runs wild. And in the midst of all this wildness and swimming, whether the stream or the ground, whatever metaphor we're using, but in the midst of it, our life is blossoming. It's unfolding so alive for us here, blooming right in the midst of suffering. So let's just sit for a moment and experience this together.
So no matter what's going on for you, you're here. You're sitting calmly and quietly here. And this kind of willingness and attentiveness to do this is a kind of love. It's a form of love. So please take in the goodness of your own being, of what you're doing here. Uh, Absorb it. The more that we allow ourselves to take in this goodness, say, the neuropsychologists and scientists, the more our brains actually can uh, remember. And so look at the quality of the love in your life simply by being here. Look what you've done by committing to the practice. Be grateful to yourself. Appreciate appreciate all of us what we're doing here. Thank you very much for your attention, for your practice. This is a walking period. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.